0: Good morning, everyone. The uh, little ones can go ahead and be dismissed or ones that are not so little too. So thankful for children's ministry and really if you think about what children's ministry is, what it really is is family ministry. Really what children's ministry exists to do is to minister to families, to assist families in proclaiming the gospel to their kids and so I want you to continue to pray for that ministry. Not, it's not child care. And uh, what it really is, is it's ministry, gospel ministry to kids. So they are future pastors and missionaries and leaders and servants in this local church. So appreciate your prayers for them. Thanks also for praying for me as I was in Los Angeles this week in school, getting to study all sorts of kind of geeky things that I'm really excited about. So thankful for your prayers. It's good to rub shoulders with great scholars that uh, just have forgotten more Bible than I'll ever learn in a lifetime and, and to be able to see some sweet things in God's word and be more prepared for ministry. But it's good to be back here with you. I thought about you all week, my family especially, but I thought about you as well and I'm thankful for this body. But I wanna begin by saying that to be a Christian is synonymous with being on a mission. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Christian life in that way before, but it's true. When God called you to be a Christian, he simultaneously recruited you into a mission. That at the same time, God awakened you by sovereign grace, he made you an ambassador and and messenger of that grace. What I'm saying is that the exact moment that you were rescued by Jesus Christ, you were in that moment recruited. When you were drafted, you were also, when you were delivered, you were also drafted. When you were saved out of the world, you were also simultaneously sent into the world. That's what it means to be a Christian, not just the moral improvement of your life, but the joining of a movement as your life. And yet I feel a burden for you this morning. My burden is that the movement and mission to which you are called is not even just difficult, it is humanly impossible. Reaching every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. You, you can't do that on your own. And heck, it's not even just difficult. It's also really, really dangerous. It might just cost you your lives. Maybe not today. Maybe not next year. But it might one day. And So the burden is, if God doesn't come through for us, and provide what we need to finish the mission. Mark my words, we might as well throw in the towel of Christianity. Do you know why? Because without the Father's power, we will lose our faith, we will be devoured by the devil, and we will become so distracted away from the mission that no one will ever hear the gospel, and the army of darkness will win. Those are the stakes. And yet again... That's only if God doesn't come through for us. Because if he doesn't, let's just quit and join a bowling league. But if he does, and mark my words, he will, then that means that the only thing we have to fear in life is fear. And we know that the Father's gonna come through for us and give us what we need to finish the mission because that's exactly what Christ prays In our text this morning, it's minutes before a gang of thugs come in with torches and pitchforks to arrest Christ. He prays to the father and what he prays is really astonishing because we find out that all of human history is just one giant collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. And yet we also find out that how those people get saved is through the loving proclamation of the gospel that as Christians, we're not only recipients of God's grace, we are instruments of God's grace. You see, if, uh, if you are saved here this morning, then that means that you have been set apart for a sacred mission of reaching the world with the gospel. That is what Christ prays, which means What you're about to hear Christ pray this morning could very well turn your lives upside down, and I very much hope that it will. This morning in this group, there are three groups of people, and each one of you fits in one or more of these groups. For instance, group number one. Some of you this morning, you need to be shaken up. You need to be shaken up because you've got your little world And you've got your little routine and you go about your day and you do the things that you legitimately need to do, but you never once consider the thousands around you that are perishing. And yet you have the very message that alone can save them from perishing. This morning is for you. Group number two, some of you here need to be fired up this morning. You need to be fired up because you need to see that that all of the adventures that you pretended as a kid were just preparation for the most thrilling and dangerous adventure that exists in the world called the great commission because in this adventure there's a real heaven and a real hell and a real devil and a real gospel and a really sovereign god who will win it all in the end. This morning is for you. And finally, some of you desperately need to be woken up. You need to be woken up, and by that I mean you need the very salvation that Christians are called to proclaim. I mean that some of you have not truly yet embraced Jesus Christ by faith. You're spiritually dead, you think you're saved, but you're still a slave to your sin and your soul hangs by a slender thread over the gaping jaws of eternal hell. This morning is also for you. So let's go to the prayer, shall we? The radioactive prayer of the Son of God where we'll see not just the mission, but what the Father has given to guarantee the victory of that mission. John 17, verses 6 through 19. Here's where we're going. You may or may not have notes. Here's here's the roadmap of where we're headed. This morning, I want you to see from our text, three sovereign works by the Father. Three sovereign works by the Father that you need to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. That's where we're headed. Three sovereign works by the father that you need to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. So without further ado, sovereign work. Number one, here it is to finish the mission. You must be preserved by the father for the witness of the church. You must be preserved by the father for the witness of the church. Now, Do not forget where we're at here in John 17. In minutes, Christ is going to be in handcuffs, being questioned by the authorities. In about six to eight hours from now, even before breakfast is on the table, he will be crucified for the sins of the world. And on the brink of all of those things, what does he do? He prays. He prays. And in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples, the 11 disciples, and for their daring mission to go behind enemy lines and reach the nations with the gospel. And you have to understand, it's really crucial that he prays for them here at this point. Do you know why? (laughs) Because you and I believe in Christ today ultimately because Christ prayed for the disciples right here. The disciples, you understand, these are the first missionaries. These are the first church planters. These are the first first pastors and, and preachers and martyrs and writers of the New Testament. He had to pray for them here to ensure that when they died, the gospel did not die with them. And you can tell that Christ has mission on his mind because of what he says in verse 18. Look down at verse 18. He says, even as you sent me, Father, into the world, i.e. to save people, I also have sent them into the world, i.e. to save people. Do you see? Mission and missionaries and reaching the world with the gospel, that's on his radar. And the first thing for which Christ asks the Father is that he would preserve and protect their faith, because I'll just tell you, they were really going to need it. And yet, interestingly, before Christ even prays for the disciples, in verses 6 through 8, he prays about the disciples. And in so doing, he gives five descriptions of what an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ really is, which should prompt you to ask the question, am I an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ? Do I meet the criteria? And I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Let's look at the list and see. Description number one of a true disciple, look at verse six. He says, I revealed your name, Father, to the men you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Now do you hear it? The repetition of the word gave there in the text. You see, a disciple ultimately is a love gift exchanged between the father and son before time began. in other words, in eternity past, the father singled out and selected a particular number of souls to be saved. And then he gave them to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. That is ultimately a disciple, which is really a profound thing. Because what that means is your testimony of how you got saved didn't actually begin at your conversion or even the day of your birth but it began back in time to before the world began when the father chose you for salvation. Description number two, look at verse six. I revealed your name to the men you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Here it is. And they have kept your word. Now that's devastating. You see, a disciple is one who keeps and obeys and submits to the word of God. A disciple, you see, is one who understands that the word of God is not some optional accessory to the Christian life, but is, in fact, the centerpiece of the Christian life. And so the question is, is the word of God the centerpiece of your lives? It should be. It has to be. Why? Because the, the Word of God is the very nuclear core of our faith, which empowers us not just for holy living before the world, but for a holy mission to the world. Description number three, look at verse seven. Now they know, Father, that all the things you have given to me are from you. Now, this is subtle, but so profound. You see, authentic disciples know that Christ was not some progressive rabbi running his own kingdom in addition to or in competition with the God of the Bible. No, everything Christ said and did was precisely from the God of the Bible. That's what he means when he says, these disciples know, Father, that everything I have and do is from you, which means when you follow Christ, you follow the God of the Bible, not only because Jesus is God, but because everything Christ did fulfilled the plan of God predestined before the ages began. My point is simply this, true disciples know that Christ is not some commendable option on the table as a religious preference, but that he is the only option on the table. Descriptions four and five of a true disciple, both of which are in verse eight. Look at the text. Because the words which you gave to me, Father, I have given to them, and they themselves have received and know truly that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. Now, do you see that? Authentic disciples know that whenever Christ spoke, he spoke from God, he spoke for God, and he spoke as God. And not only that, but true disciples believe with all of their heart that Jesus Christ came from God and he was sent by God, which means he is God and he became a man. This is his deity. This is his incarnation. And you see that all of that is what makes up what an authentic disciple is. They are chosen by God, obedient to God. They believe that Christ spoke from God, was sent by God, and that he is nothing less than God himself. And so the question is this morning, are you an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you meet the criteria? Is he your highest allegiance and the treasure of your soul? Because that's precisely what a disciple is. But then all of a sudden in verse nine, Christ stops praying about the disciples and he begins to pray for the disciples. Look at verses nine and 10. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, because they are yours, and all those who are mine are yours, and all those who are yours are mine, and I have been glorified by them. Now, do you hear his language? This is shocking to say the least. I mean, what you're about to hear is gonna gonna feel like getting hit by a freight train, but it's not only true, it it is profoundly glorious. Notice in verse nine, Christ doesn't pray for the whole world, but only for those given to him by the Father. Now, to be sure, Christ loves the world and everybody in it, but he loves those given to him by the Father in a particular way. In a saving way, dare I say, in an electing way? Because the rest of the chapter and the New Testament, by the way, makes it absolutely clear. Christ did not die for everybody, but for nobody in particular. No, he died in particular for those souls from every nation handpicked by the Father before time and given to the Son. Revelation 13:8 says that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world and every tribe and tongue and nation and people and campus and workplace and they are everywhere in the world and they are not yet saved and yet they will be saved because the Father chose them to be saved and Christ bought them with his blood so that they can be saved and they are among you in your life. I mean, think of of how bizarre it is that you personally know some of those chosen by the Father and given to the Son, and yet they don't yet believe. And yet they will believe, because all you've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel to everyone. So may God give you strength. May God give you strength because that is the mission to which you are called. At least that's a part of your mission. But then look how Christ describes those given to him by the Father. Father, I'm praying for them because they are yours. And all those who are mine are yours. And all those who are yours are mine. And I have been glorified by them. Do you see that? There's no custody battle among the persons of the Trinity. You belong both to the Father and to the Son. The Father and Son mutually own you and love you and share you because they mutually chose you and redeemed you and adopted you. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you are the most loved person in the universe because you belong both to the Father and to the sun. And yet be that as it may, that changes nothing about the fact that you are the most hated people on the face of the planet. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, i.e. he was about to leave, but they themselves are in the world and I am coming to you. In other words, I'm, I'm leaving father. I'm coming back to you to be with you and it will be the sweetest reunion in history. But as we discussed for all eternity, I'm leaving them in the world to carry out the global mission to the world, which is a weighty thing, you know. Do you know why? Because to live in the world is to be a sheep in the midst of wolves lambs in the lion's cage, goldfish among piranhas, you you get the idea. You have to understand that to live in the world is a very dangerous proposition for you because as Christ said in John 15, the world hates you. They hate you. Even if they don't know you, they hate you. And even if they don't hate you, when they find out what you truly believe and who you truly represent, they will hate you. And as he said what they did to him, they're also going to do to you. By world, theologically speaking, in John's gospel, he means the geographical hotspot of hatred for Christ and his representatives. This is a really serious issue, which is why Christ prays what he does in verse 11. Look at the text. And I am no longer in the world, but they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Here it is. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me in order that they would be one, even as we are. And that's the urgent request right there. That is the sovereign work of the father that we need to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. Father, keep them in your name. She makes me want to ask you, how do you know that you won't crash and burn in your faith? How do you know that? How do you know that you won't abandon the mission and walk away from Christ? How do you know? Because if you haven't noticed, we're a bit out of our league here. We're like little kids bringing plastic swords to a gunfight. I mean, threats are coming at us from every angle. Think about your lives. Greed and luxury and comfort and the fear of persecution and the worries of life and and lust and the unseen diabolical plots of the evil one. How can we win? How do you know that you won't walk away from Christ and go to hell forever? How do you know? Answer, we know because of what Christ prayed right here in verse 11. Keep them, Father, in your name. Meaning what? What does he mean to keep the disciples? Keep them happy? Keep them in mind? Keep them preoccupied? No, the context makes it clear, doesn't it? What he means is, preserve them, Father. Protect them, Father. Defend them. Prevent them from escape and keep them from destruction. In other words, don't let them go, Father. Don't let them drift out to sea and shipwreck their faith on the rocks of sin and destruction. Don't let them go. And we know that's what he means because of what he prays in verse 12. He gives the reason why he prays this. Look at verse 12. Keep them in your name, Father. Why? Because when I was with them, I was keeping them in your name and I protected them and none of them perished except the son of destruction in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. Do you see the key words that he uses? I was keeping them. I protected them. None of them perished none of the ones you gave to me walked away from the faith, but I'm leaving now, Father. I'm going to the cross. And there's going to be this little window. There's going to be this little crack in the space-time continuum when I'm not going to be able to hold them anymore, so I need you to hold them for me and keep them from destruction. And you see, that is how we know that we will persevere to the end and not lose our faith. That's how we know that we will finish the mission as disciples of Christ, why? Because of the sovereign indestructible power of the Father who keeps us. You see, you woke up this morning believing in Jesus Christ and not an apostate because of the sovereign indestructible grip of the father who holds you. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, (laughs) what about Judas? You totally skipped that part. Even Christ admitted that he was the one that got away. What about him? Well, to be fair, that answer probably deserves its own sermon, but let me simply say this. Although Judas bears full responsibility for his crimes, He had every chance to embrace the Messiah and he threw it all away. That's on him. Nevertheless, in some mystery that we will probably never fully comprehend in this life, even the betrayal of Judas was all part of the plan. The text makes it clear enough. Judas wasn't the one that got away because he wasn't one of the ones given from the father to the son in the first place. And the end of verse 12 makes it really clear. Look what it says. This happened in order that the scripture should be fulfilled. Meaning what? Meaning even the betrayal by Judas had already been predicted centuries beforehand in the pages of Holy Scripture. And so what that means is that that the betrayal by Judas did not signal the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan. So the answer is no. If you truly belong to Jesus Christ, you will never become like Judas, because in the end, you are chosen, and he was not. The question is, though, how does the Father keep us exactly? I mean, is this just sort of magically without us knowing it? Or does the father use means to do this? And he does use means. And there are at least two means that he uses to preserve us and prevent us from destruction. You ready? Means number one. To protect you and preserve you, the father uses his word. He uses his word. You have to understand the word of God is the holy vaccination that keeps you from getting infected by the the viruses of, of, of heresy and sin, which means if you are not in the word, if you are not richly indwelt by the word of Christ, you are needless to say, dangerously vulnerable. And then means number two, to protect you and preserve you from destruction, the father uses his church. He uses his church. The church, you have to understand, is the living firewall against really bad ideas and stupid philosophies and sin that pull you away from the faith. Put it this way, local churches save you from yourself. And so if you're not already, it's time to member up. It's time to member up. It's time to get connected. It's time to get discipled. You need to stop messing around and you need to be a part of the immune system called the local church and you need to join your blood bought comrades in the global cause of Jesus Christ. Those are two means the father uses and that's sovereign work number one which brings us to sovereign work number two. To finish the mission You must be protected by the Father against the devil's schemes, against the church. To finish the mission, you need to be protected by the Father against the devil's schemes, against the church. Because as you know, as sinners, we are so stupid and sinful that we don't need Satan's help to mess this thing up. But unfortunately, we have it. And even though Satan is not sovereign, and never has been, and never will be, nevertheless, a wounded serpent is still a deadly serpent. We have to understand this, this is not imaginary pixelated warfare on a screen, but this is a real battle in the trenches of life against an unseen spiritual enemy that is stronger than you and smarter than you and way faster than you, which means if we're going to finish the mission as disciples of Christ, we need the sovereign power of God to defend us. So look what Christ says in verse 14. He says, father, I have given to them your word and the world has hated them because they are not from the world even as I am not from the world. Do do you see what Christ is beginning to do here? He's beginning to unfold for us our relationship to the world in which we live and the relationship is less than cordial. Look at the connection he makes. I have given to them your word, Father, and the results of that, the ripple effects of that are the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not from the world. Because to belong to Christ automatically makes you enemies of the world. That's cause and effect. That's theological science. That's a fact. You join one team, you automatically make yourself the enemy of the others. It's something you need to hear this morning, I need you to hear this. You have to understand that no amount of cultural sophistication or nuance or intelligence, none of that is gonna save you from being seen as a backwards thinking bigot. None of it. Case in point, Isabella Chow. Do you know who that is, Isabella Chow? She's a, a Christian student at UC Berkeley in California and recently she abstained. That is, she voted neither yes nor no in an on-campus vote for transgender rights. She she didn't vote no. She didn't defame anyone. She wasn't nasty about it. She didn't make a stink. She just simply chose not to participate. And somehow, someway, people found out about it, and social media and the campus newspaper absolutely destroyed her. Eventually, the whole campus of 42,000 students rallied together to have her removed from student council, and on November 15th of just a couple months ago, she was terminated from her student leadership position, and she was not allowed to defend herself, nor to appeal the decision. And to this day, she is an object of hatred and disgust, not only on her campus, but even in the city of Berkeley as a whole, and she didn't even say a word. She didn't even vote. When she did speak, she was winsome and gracious and civil, and yet a little too authentically Christian. You see, the lesson is don't succumb to the temptation that believes that if we can just communicate orthodox doctrines in just the right way, if it could be as nuanced as possible, if we could just use the right tone, then those on the other side of the aisle will see us as an angel from heaven, sent from God, and they will be willing to hear your message. False. False. Nothing, nothing will resolve the underlying tension that exists when Christianity confronts the world with an ethic that it does not want to hear. My point is very simply this, you can't have your cake and your popularity too. You're gonna have to choose. You're gonna have to choose. Now, By all means, be gracious, be winsome, be polite, be civil, be all those things. Of course, never be less than those things, but at the same time, that to be a Christian, more may be required of you and you must be willing to pay the price. What you need, Christ community, is lion-hearted courage to speak the truth and broken-hearted compassion to speak it with tears in your eyes. Because look at the end of verse 14. You are not from the world Even as Christ is not from the world, so they're going to do to you exactly what they did to him. And so the question is, catch this, the question is, in light of that dangerous situation to the world in which we live, how does Christ pray for his disciples who still live in the world? How does he pray for them? Early rapture? Build a commune like the Amish? Live in a cave somewhere? Throw in the towel? No, not that. Look at verse 15. Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Apparently, just because you're likely to get shot is no reason to remove you from the battlefield. Just because the world is a dangerous and hostile place is not, enough, not a good enough reason to remove you out of the world. When it comes to the Great Commission, safety first is not the motto But in verse 15, he he prays, he asks the father for what we need to finish the mission. Look at verse 15 again. Father, I'm definitely not asking that you take them out of the world. But what I am asking is that you keep them from the evil one. And there it is. That's the sovereign work of the father that we need to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. You need to be kept from the evil one. And yet three questions come to mind, don't they? One, who is the evil one? Two, what does he do from which we need to be kept? And number three, what does it mean to be kept from him? And how does that even happen? And so question one, who is the evil one? Who is he? Well, you know him by his aliases, the serpent, the great dragon, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the father of lies, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the ruler of this world. Peter even calls him a a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. And even though he is a chump compared to Christ, he is nevertheless more dangerous than any man or any weapon that man has devised. Question number two, what does he do from which we need to be kept? Because a paralyzed sniper can still shoot his victims from a wheelchair, so so what kinds of things does he do from which we need to be kept? Well, the devil has many weapons in his bag of tricks. And there are six strategies of the evil, and all of them start with D, and I'm gonna give you all of them. Number one, doubt. Doubt, the devil sows seeds of doubt about God's goodness and the truth of his word. Number two, distraction, distraction. The devil loves to inundate people's lives with countless distractions, even very good things that pull their attention away from the very best things, namely the glory of Christ and the great commission. Number three, danger, danger. The devil uses danger and the threat of persecution to try to scatter his sheep and make them lose their faith. They won't lose their faith if they belong to him, but that is one of his weapons. Number four, division, division, one of the devil's favorite plays. He loves to sow seeds of division in churches, get this, especially among and against leadership. Number five, deception. Deception, the devil's ace in the hole, a master of deception. He is able to make people see and believe things that simply are not true because as one man said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And finally, number six, diversion. Diversion, the most evil and satanic thing he does, namely to divert people's thoughts away from the truth of God's word. Because I'll just have you know that anything, and I mean anything, that merely suggests the possibility that the word of God is insufficient or inadequate or imperfect or irrelevant is no different than the devil himself asking our first mother in the garden, did God really say See, those are the kinds of schemes from which you need to be kept, which brings us to question number three. What does it mean to be kept from him and how does that even happen? And what it does not mean is that we are spared from all satanic influence or harm that may come our way because by God's design, he is permitted to breathe his fire and spit his poison. The world is his jungle and he is the lion. And yet the question remains, how exactly does the father do that. And there are three means that the father uses to keep his sheep from being devoured by the evil and three means the father uses. And these are very basic and earthy and simple and not profound means. Number one, that the father uses to protect you from the evil one. Number one, (laughs) biblical preaching, biblical preaching. You see, God commands preaching and not skits, Because preaching is designed to reinforce God's people with bulletproof steel that deflect the flaming arrows of the evil one. Means number two, the Father uses to protect you from the evil one. Biblically qualified leaders in the local church. Biblically qualified leaders in the local church. Imperfect though they may be, they are shepherds and guardians over your soul who watch over you and they have given your lives to protect you at any cost, even even to protect you from yourself, which is why that thing called church discipline, or I like better, church restoration exists. And number three, the third means the Father uses to protect you from the evil one, get this now, the one another's of scripture. The one another's of scripture, such as encourage one another, console one another, pray for one another, love one another, comfort one another, teach one another, disciple one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, bear one another's burdens. You see, that is ministry. We don't need a bunch of programs that give the mere appearance of of pizzazz. The one another's are the pizzazz. That is church. That is ministry. That is your ministry to one another. Do you see that? You see, we are one another's immune system and the word of God is the vaccine that guards us from the devil's schemes that we are to speak into one another's lives. And all of that, all of that happens in the context of the local church, which means if you are not intimately and affectionately connected to the local church, you are literally indefensible against the God of this world and the powers of darkness. Which brings us finally and quickly to sovereign work number three. Sovereign work number three, to finish the mission, you must be propelled by the Father for the mission of the church. You must be propelled by the Father for the mission of the church. And by propelled, I mean sent. Sent. I mean dedicated I dedicated I mean recklessly abandoned to the global cause of Jesus Christ starting right there in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces that you live and work. I'm talking right there because, because the Great Commission is not merely about getting on a plane, flying overseas, learning another language and, and sending some some email uh, updates back. No, no, the Great Commission is here in Arlington. And it begins with you, because again, to be saved doesn't just mean that God chose you, get this, but that God chose you to save you, to send you for a mission. Look at first of verse 16, praying about his disciples. He says again, they are not from the world, even as I am not from the world. And that's true, isn't it? Christ is not from the world and if you belong to him, you also are not from the world. Now we need to be really clear here. You are not from the world because you are better than the world, but because you have been chosen out of the world. And yet, you still live in the world so that you can give your life to reach the world. Which is exactly what Christ means in verses 17 through 19. Look at the text. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. Even as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And I am sanctifying or consecrating myself on their behalf in order that they should be sanctified in truth. Now, follow the logic. Neither Christ, nor you, nor the disciples, nor me, none of us are from the world. So the question is, what should be our response to the world? Retreat? Surrender? Withdrawal? Fear and isolation? Removal? No, no, no. No, no, no. Mission is the answer mission is the answer which is exactly what Christ means in verse 17 look again at what he says sanctify them in the truth your word is truth and there it is that is mission now I just want you to know that that verse has been misapplied and misused out of its missionary context for years and years and years because people just assume because Christ used the word sanctify that he clearly must be talking about moral purification, about ethical conduct and purity. The problem is that word sanctify doesn't merely mean moral purification. Get this, it means holy consecration. It means holy consecration. And to be consecrated, get this, means to be set apart for a sacred purpose. That's what the term means, to be set apart for a sacred purpose, meaning that it only exists for one thing. Because ladies, you don't wear your wedding dress to make dinner or to do yard work or to walk the dog or take the kids to school or go to the gym or anything for that matter because that gown is sanctified, isn't it? It is consecrated. It is set apart and sacred for one singular purpose. To wear it for any other occasion would be to profane it And so when Christ prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. He means, Father, consecrate these men for the sacred mission of being sent into the world to reach the world. That's what he's after. And we know that's what he means because of what he prays in the very next verse. Verse 18. Even as you sent me into the world, i.e. to save people, I also have sent them into the world, to do what? To save people with the gospel. So do you see this? To, To be saved is simultaneously to be sent. Hear me when I say, all your life is. Look at me now. All your life is, is just an extension and a continuation of Christ's ministry to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. That is who you are. That is why you exist, which means you abdicate your identity as followers of Jesus Christ if you have no meaningful engagement with lost people for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so the question is, have you abdicated your responsibility, your identity as Christians? Do you have any meaningful engagement with lost people for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel? They are among you. They think they know what life is about. They think they've got it figured out, but they don't. They are blind and they don't want you to come to them. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Is that going to matter to you? It didn't matter to God when he saved you. If you're not living set apart for the sacred mission, then you have profaned your calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. So that means in a very real sense, in your jobs and at your workplaces and in your neighborhoods and maybe even in your own families, you are undercover agents sent into each of those spheres. But unlike undercover agents, the goal is not to conceal your identity as Christians, but precisely to reveal your identity as Christians. In fact, you are to blow your cover really early on purpose as representatives of Jesus Christ sent to them to proclaim the gospel to them and save them from eternal woe and despair. To be sure you look like everybody else, but you ain't like everybody else because you have been saved out of the world and then sent into the world for a sacred mission. The question is, do you own this? Do you own that? Do you own the fact that your identity as a Christ follower automatically has bound up within it that you are set apart for a sacred mission of reaching the world? And I don't mean, I don't mean merely supporting missionaries, although do that. I mean, are you there in the trenches? Maybe this sound, will sound new to you, but are you there in the trenches having unbelievers into your home? Yes, becoming friends with them but friendship as a means to telling them the most shareable news in the universe. Do you realize that the global cause, I'm almost done, do you realize that the global cause of Jesus Christ is the thing, is the thing that should shape and determine every single decision you make in life? Did you know that? Ethical, moral, Financial, geographical, and relational. The Great Commission should literally shape and influence every single decision that you make in this life. In other words, what should drive what you do, where you go, how you spend money, how you spend your retirement, and who you know and who you marry is a Great Commission issue. The question you should ask before making any and every life decision is will this advance the global cause of Jesus Christ or will it not That's the question So I close with this Christ community my burden for you is that you would see the world like God sees the world And how God sees the world is how a missionary sees the world Because our God is a global God. Our God is a missionary God. You know you have your theology right when your theology begins to make you hear the screams of the damned. When you begin to feel like a missionary on your campuses and in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods and maybe even in your own families because that is, of course, precisely what you are. To be rescued is to be recruited. To be delivered is to be drafted. To be saved is to be sent. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there are thousands and thousands, no, millions of people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who do not truly know You, Christ. They think they do. Some of them think they do, but they don't. Many are, many do, yes. But there are the needs here in this area, even in our own city, are simply incalculable. Oh Lord, and we know that guilt is not a great motivator for the Great Commission. Fear, even worse. But I pray that you would compel this little flock, that you would compel them and you would grip their souls with your glory, O Christ, with your beauty, that they would see that the gospel is the most shareable message of the world and there is literally nothing about which they need to be ashamed. Oh, Lord, we might look small on the map as far as our church size goes. That doesn't make a bit of difference. I pray that you would use these people, grip them and compel them and propel them for the mission to which you have called them when you saved them. Lord, I know that this one sermon isn't going to change everything and it's not intended to, but I pray, O oh Christ, that it would begin to shape the culture of this church that it would begin to form in us convictions. Convictions that make us tremble at your infinite worth and the reality of eternity. We thank you so much, Christ, and it's in your matchless name we pray.